0: Today's Animal Spirits is brought to you by YCharts. Welcome to Animal Spirits, the podcast that takes a completely different look at markets and investing, hosted by Michael Batnick and Ben Carlson, two guys who study the markets as a passion and invest for all the right reasons. Michael Batnick and Ben Carlson work for Ritholtz Wealth Management. All opinions expressed by Michael and Ben or any podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Ritholtz Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. Clients of Ritholtz Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. So we're looking at a chart from Bank of America Merrill Lynch. Record equity outflows over the past six weeks, and this is in billions, so it's not exactly apples to apples with 2008 because, of course, the dollars are larger now than they were then. But it's kind of interesting that we saw what looks like, just eyeballing the chart, obvious record inflows in 2018 and record outflows in 20 towards the end of 2018. I'm sorry.
1: Yes. And anytime you can draw the little circle and match it between now and 2008, that's always a good visual, right? Yes. It's good enough to get people... At least nervous or scared, I suppose. This is an interesting chart, but I don't know. So, what does this mean? We've been talking about outflows for like five weeks now.
0: Well, here's a here's a, an article from Citywire USA. Investors pulled fifty-seven billion dollars from actively managed funds in November, and they put fifty-six billion dollars into passive funds during the same time. So, here's a question for you: If flows into index funds are distorting the market. How come flows out of active funds are not having any effects?
1: Because actively managed funds have much more money to pay for marketing and advertising to put down index, index That's pretty interesting. It should be it'll be really interesting to see these numbers at the end of December. Because November was still more just flattish. There was volatility, but December was when like the pain really set in. And it is kind of funny that The actively managed fund community has been predicting for years, just wait until the downturn hits. And then all this index fund money will flow out and those investors will be screwed. And I've always thought that just the opposite, that index funds are going to see even larger inflows because I feel like investors will take that as a sign to finally get rid of some positions they've had in actively managed funds for a long time. And they won't care as much anymore now that they have some losses to, to use for tax purposes and that sort of thing.
0: So sticking with this theme, there was an article, where is this from? I think this is also from CityWire actually. Boston-based asset manager Northern Cross has closed its doors and announced plans to enter liquidation just four months after it was dropped as sub-advisor on the Harbor International Fund following a period of underperformance and outflows. So I was looking at assets under management, which you could see in Y charts for the Harbor International Fund, and it went from $40 billion in the middle of two thousand sixteen down to under well under ten billion lately, which is pretty remarkable because it says that the fund had lagged its benchmark, MSCI EFA, in every calendar year from twenty thirteen to twenty seventeen. But and while that might be true, the MSCI EFA over the last five years is up six percent and this is down six and a half percent. So certainly Nobody wants to see, you know, negative twelve hundred basis points of, of underperformance, but that is not a massive gap. Like we've seen way worse. And the fact that in assets went from forty billion down to ten is pretty remarkable.
1: You just used the phrase uh, twelve hundred basis points. I feel like there has to be an upper limit on the amount of basis points you can use. Like I, I would have said twelve percent there. I'm just, I I mean, of, I'm just saying
0: that was a bit of tongue in cheek. <laughs> okay.
1: <laughs> like I feel like my head can't comprehend what that means after a certain level. Yeah. Continue.
0: No, you're right. That's, no, that's all I got to say. Okay.
1: So this is just another sign of the times in the industry, and I think it's going to really be like it really depends on what happens from here. Like, is this bear market going to be of the shallow variety, or do we see a really long, extended, painful one? And I think that will have a lot to say with what what the industry ramifications are. And again, I think index funds are going to continue to see. I think they're going to make huge gains in terms of flows in in a more extended bear market.
0: So Tom over at Bloomberg tweeted, and I definitely won't try and butcher his last name because I did this once.
1: He is the kind of last name where it would should be in his profile, how to pronounce it, right? All
0: right. The P has to be silent.
1: Okay. Tom, uh, the, if you're listening, gonna, send, send us how to say it.
0: I'm going to take a rage check on the second half of his name. Okay. He tweeted that of the multi-factor ETFs in 2018, only two beat SPY, and I assume that he's using US-only large cap to make apples to apples comparisons. But there were some pretty decent flows into these products uh, with the biggest beneficiaries being the Oppenheimer one and the Goldman Sachs one. And Hancock had, had a... Actually, there was a lot of money going into these products.
1: The S&P, the last, I don't know, call it decade or so, I guess, since 2008, this has to be one of the most impressive runs of any... I guess if you call the s and a strategy... I mean, it's just beaten everything. When markets are up, the S and P seems to be doing best. And then, when markets were finally down this year, the S and P still beat everything. It far outperformed mid caps, small caps, value, all this stuff. It's. I mean, this maybe that's part of the reason it's been so so difficult to be an active fund manager lately is because the S and P just is just world, been world beating lately.
0: Does this have to reverse course, or or not necessarily?
1: I, I guess you'd assume, on, on just from sort of a mean reversion basis. Well because and this again, has
0: this has to be just we're talking out of both sides of our mouth because on the one hand we say that this is fairly normal. Yes. In terms of like the winners leading the gains. So let's say that it's been Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, Google, Facebook of the last five years. If it's not them over the next five years, it'll be another group of con- fairly concentrated names. So maybe it doesn't have to get easier.
1: Potentially. Or we could see the we could also see that in a in a much smaller magnitude, like after the tech bust where you finally see these things like equal weight and in, in small caps and mid caps finally outperform and, and international, which you've been showing me lately the last few months. You've finally seen an uptick in things like emerging markets and foreign developed markets, which got hit much earlier in the year, did a lot better than the S&P in the last couple months.
0: So somebody sent this to me a few weeks ago. We were talking about... I think maybe you made the comment, is there a seasonalities mutual fund? It turns out that there is one, and I, I don't want to name names because... What we're about to say is not that complimentary. At least these are just the performance numbers. So I'm, I don't want to talk disparagingly about this fund, but it launched pretty much at the beginning of January 2014, and what it is trying to do is is pretty simple. Simple. It just it wants to be in the market when things are looking favorable, and it wants to get out of the market when it's when you know the opposite conditions are in place. And so 2014, 2015, 16, 17, 18. So it's got five years. And over that time, the S&P 500 is up 57%. Just the total bond market is up 13%. One to three-year treasury bonds are up 3.5%. And this thing is up just over 7%.
1: So it's a tactical that'll go to cash or whatever. It does. yeah,
0: Yeah. It does a bunch of levered stuff and it could go be totally defensive and all in and then some. So, I mean, timing the market is just really hard.
1: Yeah, it's true. And especially when the market has been so resilient. Anything you've done to bet against the market or manage risk or what have you for these past few years has not really worked out very well. So
0: that is is pretty much the singular defining thing in bull markets is that risk management is not rewarded. In fact, it's punished severely. Now, that's not to say that if the last five years went differently that this fund would have done any better or worse. I don't know. But it has tried to implement... And it, and it does say that it's rules based, and I I was looking at like the, some of the faction and stuff, and it just hasn't worked out. And not surprisingly, there's not a, a whole ton of assets in this thing.
1: This is the point where the fund manager says, "Wait to have a full market cycle." Isn't that? Isn't that? Kind of, that's the only play you have there, right? <laughs> <laughs> I think I think that's pretty much it.
0: Well, if you're in a if you're in a fund that's done lousy, or any investment for that matter that's done lousy over the last X years, isn't it really hard to sell it? Just I don't yeah, care. Definitely. I don't care if the strategy is irrelevant. I don't care what market environment. I don't care what strategy it is. If you've been in something for three or four years, five years, and it's done so poorly, you have to think, even though you know it's not rational, that the minute you sell it, it's going to be at the bottom.
1: And it's going to be even harder to sell if you didn't do well more recently, over the last let's call it three or four months. Like if you've been banking on volatility in the market downturn as your time to shine, and then you didn't shine, then I think investors are going to start like pounding on the door and say. Get us out of here, you you know. Whether... But this is
0: just like regret aversion. You'd rather be, be wrong via an act of omission.
1: Yes. Did you just create a new behavioral psychology term, re- regret aversion? I did not. Tank? I did not. Okay. I was gonna I was gonna give that one to you.
0: So you wrote you wrote something last week about using unemployment to time the economy.
1: It was kind of funny because the market falls and all of a sudden everyone says, Okay, there must be a recession on the horizon. And then we get some decent economic data last Friday, and stocks pop huge, and everyone says, "Okay, coast is clear. The Fed was right to raise rates. Everything is fine." And I mean, it'll change again the next time some other data comes. I'm sure, but I just want to look at people say, "Well, there's we're at full employment basically. Unemployment rate has been under four for a while. You know, must mean that the next thing is it's all downhill from here." And I look. Well, let at, me ask
0: you a question. Do you really think that any? I mean. Hmm. I think unemployment is just one. I don't know if it's an indicator variable amongst thousands. Yeah. Do you think anybody is really looking at the unemployment rate and then making investment decisions?
1: No, certainly not. I think the, my point was trying to be that you could take a lot. You could even take a lot of these scenarios and a lot of these different data points and try to pinpoint. I just think it's really hard to to compare across different. Like, think about it. Before, call it pre World War Two most of that time we were on the gold standard and then we had these wars that completely i mean how can you make comparisons to what was going on in wartime versus now and then we had these other periods where the demographics were so different and the inflation periods are so different and and then the 80s where we had a falling interest rate environment for the whole time because it, the rates started out so high so my point was kind of that any of these variables even if you took a whole host of them i think it's hard to to do an apples to apples across them and say all right now this we're definitely going into recession now because I looked at these 43 economic variables and they all line up from the past. Well, t- let me just ask you a never question. It's not that easy. Okay. Have, you
0: tried, have you tried technical analysis?
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes. I, I found a double bottoming employment rate. I think, and I had a lot of people email me saying, well, actually take a look at this and actually take a look at this. And and maybe there are some indicators that will give you a better idea. And I just think it's, I just think it's really hard to do. That, that was my whole point.
0: So Urban Carmel wrote something similar. He said, just uh, talking about the economy and stuff. He said, monthly employment gains averaged 220,000 in 2018, the second best year since 2000, with annual growth rate of 1.8% year over year. And obviously, we know what happened to stocks in 2018, not a great year. He said, employment has been driven by full-time jobs, which rose to a new all-time high in December. Again, December, not a great month for stocks. So I don't think anybody thinks that... Well, well certainly, like using non-farm payrolls, that is a... Lagging indicator that is revised, I think, three times.
1: I don't know how many times. It sounds So what, right.
0: what you want to pay attention to in, in terms of more forward looking economic data are weekly jobless claims.
1: By the way, isn't it kind of funny that the people who, the technical analysts out there, who, for, you know, they've been right in saying that price is the only indicator that matters and stocks are falling and are going to be more volatile and that's stuff that we've looked into too. But then when that happens then they try to justify it looking at economic data, right? They they turn name into, names. to, to fed watchers. Oh, I don't know, but I'm just I'm just saying it's like the term lagging indicator like isn't everything a lagging indicator in in some ways? Any any data point? I mean, what nothing tells you what's going nothing's going to be a leading indicator that. I don't see that there's anything that tells you what's going to happen in terms of where we go from here. All right, That's feel free
0: point. to email Ben uh, <laughs> and <right>. correct him. <laughs>
1: So Ben Castleman at the New York Times had another one. I think a lot of it is like looking at the trend. So he said, the economy has added jobs for a record 99 months in a row, and job growth is, if anything, accelerating. And he said, basically, and he also showed that even with sub 4% unemployment, the wage growth is starting to accelerate as well. And so I, th- I think you could say, yeah, that trend could stop on a dime. But the, the fact is, the trend has been pretty unbelievable. And now I want to give you my, my hot take on the economy right now from a non-economy guy.
0: Do I need to sit down for this?
1: I don't think so. I, I wrote, and I think a few people probably had a similar take. I think the day after Trump got elected, I wrote a piece, could Trump's presidency cause a stock market bubble? Because it seems like all these trends in the economy have continued to go in the right direction and are finally accelerating a little bit. If he would have just got his tax cut through and gone away and just gone to the, gone to the golf course for the rest of his presidency and not done anything else with these tariffs and this border stuff, and the trade war, like, couldn't he have probably maybe got a, a wicked bubble going again that just blown this thing out of proportion? Like, maybe so you th- actions- so
0: you think he's actually second level? He's playing it cool. He doesn't want things <laughs> to get too far ahead of themselves. Of
1: course, he has no idea what he's doing. But I, I think had he not done some of these other things that have gotten people thinking about uncertainty and problems with the trade war, like if he'd have just got the tax cut and let this economy run a little bit, he could have just let things get totally out of control. And I think at that point the Fed there's nothing they can do. Like they tried to raise rates in the real estate bubble and they got to five or six percent and it didn't work. So people tried to like blame the Fed. I think at that point maybe the so I don't know. That's that's my hot take on the economy right now. It could've we could've been blowing a bubble and maybe the trade war stuff actually like tampered it down a little bit.
0: Interesting. Could be so JP Morgan did their guide to the markets, which always has some great stuff and I think we've gone over this a bunch of times, but they had a new one this time that I really liked showing income earned by a hundred thousand dollars investment in a six month C D versus the income needed to beat inflation. And it is pretty wild looking at history how CDs used to give like a pretty nice real rate of return.
1: It's and it's still very low even in two thousand eighteen, right? If you look at it across history. Wait, That's why what it's I, funny. wait, what? Yeah, no, I'm just saying when you look at the course of history how low it is, people are like excited about three percent interest rates again. It, and oh, people got it, got people it. think people think that like that is high because they've anchored to these past rates that were zero or whatever. I, I mean it's it, it is pretty wild that it it's still way low compared to the last 40 50 years basically.
0: So you've you've said Probably this is a hard switch. We're done with okay. that. <laughs> you've said often that one of the things that nobody says in a bear market is now expected returns are higher and dividend yields are higher.
1: Yes. Everyone always says, I've seen this movie before and I know it ends in a bull market. And my take to that is, yes, it ends with lower prices and higher dividend yields and lower valuations, which is good for people who are putting money into the market.
0: So I was looking at this again on Y charts and the S&P 500 now on a trailing 12-month basis yields 2%. Emerging markets are at 2.7%. Pacific stocks are at 3%. And Europe is almost 4%.
1: That is wild. This is this is a cool chart. I I would not have guessed that European stocks are almost at 4%. And going back to, I guess it looks like, what is this over the last year, six months, it's basically doubled, right? The dividend yields. In- this,
0: this almost looks like the opposite of the Fed's balance sheet. <laughs> <laughs> yes.
1: We've got to overlay it to show how dangerous this is.
0: And again, for Animal Spirits listeners, if you contact Y Charts and tell them that you found them through us, you get a 20% off their subscription.
1: Yeah. Feel free to reach out. We've got a few questions for people in the last week or two after we mentioned that, and uh, they're happy to answer some questions. We've, we've been getting a lot out of that, and we'll, we're going to show another little wrinkle from them next week. So I found another piece of good news for those people who are worried about the latest downturn. So this is from Ask About the Motorin's blog, Musing's on markets. Which he is the only got, person is, who is allowed to say musings. I, I think so. Yeah, <laughs> that's fair. He it. His blog looks like it was created in like 1994. It's so old. He uses the Blogspot one, and I actually give him credit for for sticking with that old old look. It's pretty impressive.
0: By the way, we spoke about this a few weeks ago, not on the show, but he wrote a book with William Bernstein like a long time ago. Something 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 investment analysis that I have I bought, but I've not read.
1: Oh, I did not know that. Yeah, I, I'm sure. I'm guessing it's a little. I've read some of his valuation stuff before. He's he's a master on this stuff, but it's it's a little dry. So he said he he calculates. I don't know if he does this on a monthly or quarterly basis. He calculates the equity risk premium, and he looks at this and it uses a lot of forward looking data in terms of interest rates and growth rates and that stuff. So he kind of put some caveats in here, but he says his calculated equity risk premium, which is equity risks equity returns going forward from here over bonds. And he has it at close to 6%, putting it in the top decile of historical numbers, exceeded only by the equity risk premiums in three other years, 1979, 2009, and 2011. So he's saying after what we've had and based on the interest rate environment, stocks are actually undervalued. All right. Thoughts?
0: What were the other three years? 1929, 1987.
1: (laughs) Uh, 79, 2009, and 2011.
0: Well, those were all good times to be buying stocks over the long term. I mean, isn't yeah. it always? Isn't it always, Ben?
1: I'm just trying to look at the uh, the glasses half full here, Michael.
0: That's good. I'll take it. Oh, speaking of this, it is pretty wild how quickly the market can go from overvalued to, quote, undervalued.
1: Yes. Right? And, and it's
0: also amazing like, how little that matters.
1: Well, don't you remember earlier this year, people were trying to make the case that Amazon is a value stock? Yes. After it fell like 10% or something? Yes, yeah, it, may- it happens. In, and 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 how little the market cares what people consider over or undervalued. We used to have a, a money manager back in the day. I won't name any names here, but they had a fair market value for the S&P 500, and it used current interest rates and a bunch of other variables. They like did their own roll-up of earnings numbers.
0: Does his name rhyme with Way Calia? <laughs>
1: no, this was like a, just a stock money manager. And it, it was kind of like a strategist where the market would move and the fair value would follow whatever the market moved but it and they'd always say like if interest rates go from 3% to 1% the market is actually 45% undervalued or you know it's like it's so hard to do because all it did was track the market basically so I, that's one of my least favorite terms i think in the market is fair market value oh yeah so I, that I
0: that is that's a red flag for uh, charlatans everywhere
1: <laughs> yes and that's kind of the way that you get out of making a a uh, prediction as well.
0: Yeah. Oh. Oh. We- you know what fair market value is. Nobody else does.
1: Right. Exactly. Like it, it. It. That's the kind of thing that, even if you could get a precise, like hold on that, like the market doesn't care what you think it is. The
0: same people who say fair market value are the same are the. Oh, I'm sorry. The people who say fair market value are the same people who say full market cycle. <laughs> yes.
1: And they also say 1,200 basis points. <laughs> wah wah. Okay. So this was a good paper. I think Josh sent us this one. I've never heard, I've never seen this before. So this was a uh, paper on SSRN. And they found... They looked at these 401 k So they say, using a proprietary database of 401k plans, we show that alphabetically, the order that fund names appear when listed in alphabetical order significantly biases participants' investment allocation decisions. So they actually found that people would just choose the first fund that they saw. And they said there was a larger impact when there was a higher number of funds in the plan but even when there were relatively few funds available, people would pick a fund that came first in alphabetical order.
0: Well, th- that is definitely not surprising. I don't think anybody sorts it in their head, but it's if it's literally shown in alphabetical order, then... I mean, how many, how far down are you going to go?
1: So I, my first job... By the way, this, do you think that's why
0: American... Do you think American funds... Ah, uh, like, that's a good point. ...was conscious and, when they thought about that?
1: And they're huge in the 401k business. So my first job I had in this industry...
0: Oh, right, yeah. How do you explain Vanguard then?
1: Oh, good. Maybe that's why it took Bogle so long. to Wait, was, this, it. So a, was this a survey? I don't know. It was a study. So they, they had a proprietary database. So I don't know what that means. But the first job I had was at a, at a shop called Aileron Limited. And Aileron is like a, some term of a, on a plane. And the guy, it was a small business. And he said he picked the name because he's a big fan of planes. But he looked for something on a plane that began with A because he wanted to be at the top of the order.
0: Maybe also that's why Apple is AAPL.
1: <laughs> All right. That's true. That's why it got to a trillion dollars first because it had a good it had a good ticker.
0: So there was an article over the weekend or last weekend about credit card perks. This is from the Wall Street Journal. This is nuts. J.P. Morgan's credit card holders, as of the third quarter, has accrued $5.8 billion in rewards they had not yet redeemed, up 53% from the end of 2016.
1: Wow. And so this also showed that a lot of these places are potentially cutting back on their rewards. Is that right? And I'm, I'm yeah. sure all their other people are. The thing is, I go into these cards. I, I do a little bit of the credit card jumping around here and there. I used to do it more and try to get the bonuses and because you can get a hundred thousand miles or points or whatever it is when you sign up for some of these. So I used to do it more than I I do now. I I do it occasionally still, but I go in expecting that to happen. Them to cut back and it happens. It happens with airlines too. The miles are cut back and you can't get as much or the hotels. So. I think if you are going to play this game and try to u- utilize them for the rewards, you have to assume that eventually they're going to cut it back. There is no way they can keep that pace up, so I think that's that's just part of the game.
0: Now, can they? Let's say that you've accrued a hundred thousand miles. Could they change what miles mean in terms of, oh, of miles course. to dollar conversion?
1: Yeah, and I've had them do that before with some of my cards, where the the points just aren't worth as much anymore, or it doesn't it doesn't go as far, or and, and I'm, I'm, I'm sure if they see all those, the value of those on their books, I'm sure they think about that all the time and, so and make said, people angry, I'm sure, but... You've
0: said in the past that people that don't pay their credit card bills on time are subsidizing people that take advantage of this. And I'm, I'm yes. sure that there's something to that. But it's amazing how much these cards make from merchants. So the article yeah. said that merchants paid card issuers $43 billion in Visa and MasterCard interchange fees in 2017, up 68% from 2012. And this cost merchants about, let's see, uh, around 2% of purchases. So they're paying a lot.
1: Yeah. So, so I looked this up because I, I said, I kind of made a, a comment on Twitter one day saying that people that pay their cards off and earn those rewards are being subsidized, like you said. And people said no. It's actually the the fees. So I looked it up. It's actually kind of amazing. They make pretty much. I think it was a little bit more off of the interest rate charges, but it, it was kind of neck and neck between how much they make in terms of interest rate charges on the cards for people who don't pay it off every month and these fees from merchants. So, I, I guess they just must have so much power over these merchants that they can do whatever they want. Now, you wonder. I mean, I'm sure merchants take that into their price setting mechanisms when they when they do that, but. I guess that's why you see all these little places in New York that say cash only, and we'll give you a, we'll give you a lower price or something. But
0: so there was a uh, an article in Barrons talking with women money managers, and the study I think was done by a friend of the show, Nicole Boyson, and what they found was that at least in terms of hedge fund managers. There is no difference in performance between men and women. Now, pretty small sample size. I forget how many women were actually in the study, but it's as you can imagine, it's unfortunately not a ton. But yeah, what she they said
1: out of like ten thousand, there's like two hundred and fifty or women.
0: Okay, so, yeah, right. So like four percent. But what they did find was that women have to produce almost one hundred basis points more to have the same assets under management.
1: Oh wow. Okay. Yeah, I, I yeah, that seems jeez. So, so yeah. maybe
0: maybe there's not a difference in performance between professional hedge fund managers, but I still do suspect that, like for the average investor, women have a better temperament for investing.
1: Yeah, I would, just because I if
0: nothing else, they're less likely to be stupid, overconfident, and trade more.
1: And yeah, and a lot of the studies show that men just have men, men are more inclined to gamble. And especially, this happens a lot at hedge funds, especially when they get down and they're underperforming and they're way under their, their watermark, their high watermark, then they take huge gambles to try to get it back.
0: That's totally something I would up,
1: do. And end up losing more, right? Is that Did I just describe your trading strategy? <laughs>
0: <laughs> Pretty much. Uh, and sticking with this, so Mary Meeker of Kleiner Perkins is trying to raise, and I'm sure she will, $1.25 billion for a uh, for a VC fund. And this is going to be... She's going to be the first woman to do so to raise a $1 billion VC
1: fund. Yeah. That's impressive. And she also wins the award for longest PowerPoint presentation every year. Yes. you go through that, It's got to be at least... We spoke about
0: pages. that on the show earlier, maybe last year, yeah.
1: I guess. Yeah. And it's always great information.
0: So Einhorn was down
1: 34% last year. It says he was down 9% in December. That's That's what I was talking about where someone like him who's had outflows already, and we've talked about him on the show before has a really long track record, has been great, but has been banking on overvalued stocks going down. Wasn't he betting against every single huge technology stock? Shouldn't he have made some money just from that?
0: And that's, that's negative that's 3,200 basis points in alpha.
1: <laughs> nice. There you go. It says he posted 10 months of negative returns in 2018. Oof. I wonder if... For for comparison's sake, the S and P was up eight out of twelve months.
0: And this doesn't make sense. I was going to say, I wonder if like sh- you know people are like just squeezing him, but he's in he's in these giant companies.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I would have to imagine in the next few months we're going to be seeing story after story of huge outflows from funds like that. If they if people were holding out hope for them to do better in a downturn, and then. That happens. I can't imagine that's going to go over very well. I
0: think he spoke about his bubble basket that he was shorting, like stocks like Amazon and Netflix in 2015 or 16.
1: Possibly he capitulated, but...
0: So on the opposite side of the coin, Bridgewater's Pure Alpha gained 14.6% in 2018 net of fees, which is really funny. And another reminder to please not listen to what billionaires are talking about when it comes to the market. Not because they don't know a lot or not because you're smarter than them. It's just what they say is not relevant. What Dalio talks about the economy or the market has no bearing on what his fund is actually doing because he said in the early 2018, if you're holding cash, you're going to look pretty foolish. And as a matter of fact, cash was the best performing asset in 2018 and they crushed it. They were up 15% last year.
1: Yeah. It's and you wonder how much I, I don't know how, how the inner workings of Bridgewater work, and I guess maybe not a lot of people do, but he seems to be sort of riding off into the sunset and writing books and being more of a promotional person. Maybe I'm wrong on that. But uh yeah, I, I it's yeah, it's so hard to tell when these people say stuff how much you can actually use. So
0: last year the strategy gained just one point two percent. Of course, the SP five hundred was up twenty two percent, and there there I go comparing a hedge fund to the S P, I'm sorry. Um, but
1: this thing- wait, I'm gonna wait, I'm gonna people that complain about that, I think that's a perfectly fine fine comparison. I'm gonna here's my reasoning. So people always say that hedge funds take much less risk. I think hedge funds take way more risk than just investing in a simple stock market. Yes, they have lower net exposure, but they also have higher gross exposure because of're shorting stocks. You're investing in a liquid fund structure that you don't know what's in it. So it's basically a black box. You have no idea what the holdings are most of the time, and you get a monthly performance number that isn't audited until the end of the year. And sometimes you get an audited value like nine months after the end of the year to know exactly what that value is. So, so why? Is, think,
0: so, so okay, so very fair points, but why is the S and P five hundred the right bogey?
1: Well, it pro- okay, let me backtrack a little. It probably still isn't, but those places compared themselves to the S&P for so long when they were doing well. And the same thing happened with endowment funds. You hear these endowment funds crying now about, well, you can't compare us to the 60-40 portfolio and S&P because we are more global and we use all these other things. But when they were beating it, they they were more than happy to compare themselves to it. So I think if you're going to do it in the good times, you have to do it in the bad times as well.
0: All right. You have very good points there. But this strategy has operated for nearly three decades and has generated an average annual net return of about 12% per year. Pretty good.
1: Pretty good. 1,200 basis points a year. Yep. Okay. Survey time. According to Nielsen's study, 25% of families making $150,000 a year or more are living paycheck to paycheck. One in three that earn 50 to 100 are living paycheck to paycheck. And less than 50 grand percentage actually increases to half, which I would assume that would be even higher for people earning under 50 grand. My take on this, the hardest part about these surveys is you don't know. Obviously, the circumstances are always different, but I think the biggest thing is like where do you live?
0: Yes. Right? Like you could say like I think surveys things. like this are fair just because you're not asking anybody to predict how they're going to feel. You're just saying, "Hey, are you living paycheck to paycheck?" And I think people are yeah. fairly honest with that when they answer.
1: Yeah, I think that I actually think these numbers are probably pretty pretty good. This um, is one survey we can get behind.
0: Well, there's actually one more survey that we can get behind that's coming up, right. but 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 this this makes a lot of sense to me and I was reading over the weekend, The Wealthy Barber. Have you heard of that book?
1: Yes. He was on Patrick's podcast.
0: Oh, that's where I heard him from. I thought it was from Patrick's podcast, but I wasn't sure. So some of the ideas are a little dated, but the most powerful idea in the book is so simple, but it is, it's, it's so obvious. The way to get wealthy is, or maybe not whatever, the way to be comfortable is to save 10% of your income and just invest it. And do that automatically. Just have 10% come out. You won't even notice it. And just put that into the market.
1: Good to me. And I think that yeah. a lot of
0: people that are living paycheck to paycheck, obviously, don't do that.
1: Yep. All right. What's the so, other survey? So
0: he- here's one more survey. And this was actually coincidentally done by Charts. 65% of millennials ages 22 to 37 say that they'll reach seven-figure wealth by age 45 or sooner. And this finding is actually corroborated by another survey released earlier this year from TD Ameritrade, found that more than half of millennials expect to be millionaires in their lifetime, with more than 4 in 10 saying it'll happen by 50. And the hammer to the study is that fully two-thirds of millennials have nothing safe for retirement.
1: Yeah, but they're all going to create the next Facebook. So here's my question to you. I am 37 years old, going on 40, probably. Can I consider myself a millennial, or am I just kind of in no man's land? Because they say like 88. I was born in 81. Can I really consider myself a millennial? I'd say no. Are you Gen X? I think I'm a no man's land. I'm nothing. I'm I have no generation. No,
0: no, you're a millennial. You're one of us.
1: I figured I could rip on. Okay. I'm just I'm like an elder of the millennials.
0: Yes, exactly.
1: Okay. All right. Let's get on to some listener questions. If my investment horizon is roughly 40 years until retirement and I max out my Roth IRA each year, saving through a consistent monthly contribution, would you increase the amount to something like Two thousand a month in January through March, while the market took such a big hit, it avoids timing the market but also takes advantage of a twenty percent downturn. What uh, do you think?
0: Yes, of course, and this is that's good market timing.
1: I, yeah, I think I'd be fine with that, if, especially if you you're well aware of the forty year time horizon and understand that you could put that you could front load that contribution and still see the stocks fall more. Uh, I think you just have to deal with it. But if if you want to do that and get your saving out of the way now for such a, I mean, why not? I see no problem there. Yes, all right. Some recommendations. What do you got? I was reading the book "Impossible to Ignore," which I heard it on some podcasts. I believe Barry was talking to someone. I can't remember who it was, but it was, it was kind of the psychology behind getting people to pay attention to you. So it was really cool about it's kind of the like how the brain processes memory and how to get people to remember you in presentations and speeches. And it was really interesting. So here's a good good one that I saw. They they talked about this this museum and how they get people to kind of come in and stay longer at their exhibits. It was a really cool profile they did at the beginning of the book. But they talked about how the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York, visitors spend an average of 32.5 seconds gazing at a work of art. And the Mona Lisa, which is arguably the most famous painting in the world, at the Louvre, captures a visitor's attention for roughly 15 seconds at a time. So I was saying that even this stuff, like it's crazy how like, how short our attention spans are. And this book tries to help you get people to remember you more. Oh, that's good. Which is interesting. Yeah, uh, I mentioned Escape at Danamora before. Finished that one last week. It was excellent, and it kind of got me thinking. There, there should probably just be more shows that are just one season or a mini series, mm-hmm. because so many of them I like. I I loved the marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Uh, couldn't first season. Couldn't get into season two. Me too. Sneaky Pete. Sneaky Pete was great for se- one season. I couldn't get into it. Maybe that's just my short attention span.
0: No, I think but, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, I I second that. Escape at Danamora was amazing. I thought Patricia Arquette and Eric Lang, the guy that played her husband Lyle, really carried the show. Oh,
1: he was excellent. Wasn't didn't he feel he felt so oh, bad for that
0: that poor bastard?
1: If you look at the pictures of them, they they look like that. Yeah, they, they look were just like that. Yeah,
0: they were so good. But to your point about one season, so so Robin watched the second season of Maisel. I loved the first. I just I I just I was I didn't really need a second season of it. But I don't think that I think that it's hard to keep recreating like yeah. new, great material. And if they have an awesome season, well, of course, they're going to milk that, you know? Yeah.
1: Okay, one more. We watched the movie Life Itself on Amazon Prime. Came out in the theaters a while ago and just hit Amazon Prime. I feel like I heard this of is that. This is from the guy who created This Is Us, oh, which is my, one of yeah, my yeah, staff shows. Good. So he was on the Bill Simmons podcast a few months ago talking about it, and it actually got really bad reviews. He got yeah, I 12% guess
0: when, on Rotten Tomatoes.
1: It went, when it went to the... So I went into the low expectations, so I'm going to preface it by saying that, but I actually liked it. Okay. And I can see why some people wouldn't because... Not to spoil anything, but there was a few tragedies, like early in the movie, where you kind of go, "Whoa, hey, that!" You know, I, I wasn't expecting that at all. But then it kind of turns around, and by the I end, believe I, actually, you t- I believe that was a spoiler. It may have been a spoiler, but I think that was kind of common knowledge for anyone who read about it. And so, there are some sad parts to it, but it actually turned around, and by the end, I kind of liked it. So, low expectations help, though.
0: All right. Well, here's where low expectations don't help. I watched okay. Venom.
1: Oh yeah, what do you think? It sucked. Oh really? See, so yeah, that was going to be one of the few comic book ones I was going to watch.
0: And I, so when I was growing up, I loved Spider-Man. I was I never really read the comics that much, but I I loved the cartoon, and I really liked the character Venom. There were some really really kick-ass scenes, but it was a crappy
1: movie. See, because I'm a big fan of Tom Hardy too. That's yeah, I too know.
0: He, yeah, I mean, the good news is that it was not very long, so it didn't really cost me too much. But it was not good.
1: Okay. Okay.
0: So the wealthy barber. I'm not, qu- I'm not done with it yet. I'm almost done. It's definitely for beginners, but sometimes it's good to revisit the basics. you know. Mm-hmm. So for people looking for easy to digest personal finance books, I-, I do recommend it. Okay. I read a book last week or over the last two weeks, I should say, that was really excellent called The Coddling of the American Mind. And it spoke a lot about what's going on in college campuses and the safe spaces and how we got there. And it spoke at uh, one well, point about how the year you were born influences your politics, which was work from the New York Times. And it really packed a punch. I highly, highly recommend it. Who wrote that one? It was, I- I'm sorry, I only know one of the, one of the author's names is Jonathan. His last name is H-A-I-D-T. So is it? Jonathan Haidt. Yeah. Haidt? yeah, okay. Yeah. Yep. Um, and then the other person, like Greg something, I'm sorry, I don't remember his name, but uh, highly, highly recommend it. It was excellent. And, oh, I want to tell you this, I know we're almost done, but- so last week I spoke to you about the iPhone and how when you hang up on somebody on FaceTime, you like, you, you by accident you hit somebody else's face, I mean you scrambled to close the thing. Yep. So there's a lot of talk about automation and, and voice and is that the future? So this morning it was freezing and I called Robin and it said, you have two Robins in your phone book, Robin Smith or Robin Batnick. So I said, call Robin Smith. And then it said, okay, dialing Ed Borgato. And I'm like, <laughs> no, 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 no. And my phone was in my bag, Whoops. and I could have grabbed it at a time. It was early, <laughs> and I think Ed is on the West Coast. So I was like, no, 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 hang up, hang up. And then uh, it says, okay, FaceTiming John. And I was like, no, 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 what? what stop. <laughs> and this is like simple audio stuff. So, so color me skeptical that we're going to have flying cars in five
1: years. Okay. Before we go, I got one question for you. Okay. As a bald man, how do you make the decision to wear a hat? You're wearing a Nike hat right now. Right so now. you pick it yes so how do you make the decision to wear a hat be more specific is your head cold oh yeah always yeah okay so is that why you decided to wear a hat inside
0: so i'll tell you exactly why since he asked in the morning i wear a winter hat but it's too hot on the subway
1: so you're a winter sweater
0: i'm a winter sweater so i usually just take my hat off but i haven't shaved my head in a few in like uh, maybe two weeks and i'm like kind of sloppy so that's why i'm wearing a hat inside
1: good to know all the hard-hitting stuff you need to know here all right thanks everyone for listening Hit us up, animalspiritspod at gmail.com. We'll talk to you next week.